and welcome to this ninth episode of the Sports Map Podcast, where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. Today, we're absolutely wrapped to be welcoming back one of our previous guests in Edna King. Today, we'll be chatting with Edna all about ACL rehabilitation, predominantly the middle to late stages uh, with some key benchmarks, criteria, uh, return to sport and selective exercise selection. So plenty of great practical tips to get stuck into. uh, And once again, it's fantastic to have Edna on board. We do encourage you to head over to our website at sportsmap.com.au to check out all our upcoming events, including those featuring Edna King. Uh, Thanks again for listening. And if you do enjoy what we're hearing and what we're putting through, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. But that's enough for me today. Let's get into chat with Edna. Alrighty, welcome Edna. Now it's great to have you back on the podcast, uh, this time talking about ACL. We're very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Now we're about three months until you're out in Australia and hopefully uh, looking forward to some warmer weather. The Melbourne events are sold out uh, at this stage and the Sydney and Perth ones aren't too far off. So what can uh, what can those attending expect to get from these courses with yourself? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm counting down the days from the dark nights and, and the cold weather here, so very much looking forward to it. Um, I suppose from a, a growing point of view, it will be, a, I suppose, stepping back a little bit and trying to separate out you know, the differential diagnosis, where the pain is coming from, as opposed to the biomechanical diagnosis, where I'm getting sore, and trying to look at strategies about how we can influence movement as quickly as possible um, and what's relevant pathology and what's incidental. Um, and from an ACL point of view, it will be trying to begin with the end in mind. What do we want them to look like uh, when, we're, when we're letting them back into chaos? How can we begin? What tests can we use to, to quantify things uh, and to begin to individualize their profile to decide month by month and step by step how we work those transitions from getting off crutches to compound lifts to hopping and running to change direction to chaos how we can begin to have a very clear structure that the day before surgery, I can chat through with the athlete step by step by step as opposed to making up as I go along or or having various different standards for different athletes. It's a perfect segue as well into our topic today, which is uh, ACL. So I guess the ACL is such an extensive topic, but I thought today we'd really try to stick to the rehab aspect of it and maybe break it into those different stages. Touch on the early stage, but probably a greater focus around those mid to late stages of rehab and give listeners a bit of an idea on some some targets or criteria in each stage, some key exercise selection, maybe some common errors in each stage and, and just some different benchmarks marks you might use um how's that sound yeah outstanding beautiful so so we've got a we've got an acl athlete um post-operation comes in to see you maybe two or three weeks post-op uh, what are some of your key targets you're looking for in this stage and, and what do you want to see the athlete achieve before progressing if we think about at the end okay what, what are the common pitfalls that people fall into well number one is um insufficient redevelopment of strength uh, and, and muscle mass and so what we're looking for in those early stages is how quickly can I lift with a degree of competency and intensity that's going to let me get the training effects I want, whether that's hypertrophy or more max strength work. Um, and so what you're looking for is there's nothing easier to rehab than a cam knee and there's nothing harder to rehab than an angry knee. Um, and so trying to get the range of motion back, make sure they are sensible in how much on-feed time they have and they're normalizing their gait. That's the kind of bread and butter that we want out of the way as quickly as possible and also trying to 
to reduce their fear and apprehension and any concerns they have about how, how they can get stuck into the knee, so to speak. Very often you'll find that, that in the early stages of rehab, there's a reliance or an overuse of mobilizations and manual therapy to regain movement when actually the more we can make the athlete go and get it themselves, the more that desensitizes them, the more it reduces their fear and apprehension, but also the more it puts the onus of responsibility onto them in that I'm going to tell you what to do because it's up to you, buddy, to go and get it done. Um, and when you set the marker really, really early about how it's going to be a very exercise-driven approach, about how when you've pain and discomfort, that that's to be understood and appreciated but not be feared, um, and how that pain and discomfort can really influence you know, the feedback mechanism to you as am I doing what I'm doing properly and as I'm not, that's an incredibly important time in, in terms of how you set the agenda for the months that follow afterwards. Right, so you're really using uh, pain to guide, I guess, you're an athlete with your selection and, and, and how you're performing an exercise. What are some of the exercises you would use in this stage to achieve some of those those targets like range of motion and reduce effusion, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so I think, I mean, your effusion will be, again, along the, the sensible lines of, of compression, uh, cryotherapy, and load management. Um, obviously, you're going to have a huge amount of quads weakness. You'll have had a lot of trauma to the knee, so that's not going to change overnight. It's about listening to the knee uh, and uh, regaining full extension as quickly as possible. Um, the question always is how much extension is enough extension, but you're looking you're looking for symmetry. Uh, you'll find a lot of them that have a loss of extension. It's quite a soft end feel. You're able to mobilize into it, uh, or they're able to mobilize into it within the session. And what I often say to them is <clears throat> you want to go to bed every night having symmetrical extension and as you get up in the morning you'll probably have lost some of it so when you brush your teeth you want to make sure that when I brush my teeth in the morning and brush my teeth in the evening I've regained that knee extension and knowing that as the knee settles over that first couple of weeks it'll fluctuate more into morning but that it's it's trending and that you find more mornings than not you're beginning to keep it with your knee flexion again I think it's important that they do it as much as possible and that you're looking for 10 to 15 to 20 degrees improvement week on week uh, everyone's a little bit different everyone's physiology reacts a little bit different in terms of how the knee becomes inflamed and angry afterwards so you just want to be trending in the right direction on friday is my movement better than it was on monday if i put that back to back for a couple of weeks i should i should be fine as a, a bit of a troubleshoot i guess so if i'm got this athlete and we're maybe you know, eight to ten weeks and struggling to get that extension what are maybe some uh, issues there that we might need to resolve or, or some options up your sleeve you can use then yeah i think um <clears throat> it's a really good point so the question is, is, is what's the driver of that lack of extension? And so th there's three potential ones. Number one is it's just uh, a soft tissue tightness or, or, or a, a stiffness uh, due to the inflammation. Number two is that there's some block uh, to regaining that final aspect of terminal extension, whether that's something in the way of the graft or you know, a graft tightness that's just a, a shade a little, bit, uh, a little bit too tight and reducing that terminal extension. Or number three is if they have been in a flex position for a long time, despite the fact that that passive range is there on the operating theater, that you get a small amount of, of, of capsular tightening and stiffness that comes with that. Your athletes will have symmetrical hyperextension on the operating theater. They should be able to re-get it the next day after surgery, and they should be able to re-get it every morning after that. Um, so if we do that properly, you know, worrying about capsular restrictions and, and the tightness shouldn't ever come into play. If you have someone who is a very firm block, let's say the five, last three to four to five degrees of hyperextension, they have that block after two weeks, um, that's probably not going to change. Uh, that's probably a, a, you know, quite a structural difference in, in extension. And there's no added value in having the athlete worried and concerned about that, but also hammering away at it because it's, you know, it's not good. The only way it's going to change is if you stretch the graft over that restriction, which is not necessarily what you want to do either. So I think... Um, any any 
firm infield loss of extension that's retained in that first week or two, I'd be flagging it for discussion at the two-week follow-up with the surgeon. He would either or she would either say it's a point for concern or it's not a point for concern. And then I, I, I don't use, you often see people sort of mobilizing into hyperextension or hanging over the edge of the bed for 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 for, for weeks on end. Um, that's not going to change anything. It's possibly going to aggravate the shit out of the knee at the same time and, and really serves for little purpose. So trying to be very, very, to, to get a grip very early is that, is this just a, a, a general joint stiffness um, that I can mobilize in and has a soft end feeling like we can get going? You'll find that like, you do 10 reps of hyperextensions and they get it the day after surgery. Or is it something with a very firm block? Uh, very obviously that there's a restriction uh, wherever the source that restriction is. There is nothing to be gained by hammering away from that. And if it's a mild restriction, I don't think there's a whole pile to gain from making the patient anxious about it. So again, when we're goal setting and, and, and outlining what's important, say we're looking for symmetry at the, at the beginning, but you don't want to give yourself a, a stick to be beaten with by saying we have to have this the exact same as the other because two, three, four direct degrees, you know, is it important? You know, when the surgery's done well, it'll be there, there'll be no problem at all. If it isn't there, you know, is it really going to make, you know, if there's a minus 10 difference, that's a, that's a problem. But again, that's something that the surgeon will pick up on afterwards. So I think I, I don't ever see value in, if you're doing manual therapy or passive holds over the edge of the bed after, well, ever, but especially after the first two to three weeks, that's unlikely to give you any extra value. And it is far more likely to just aggravate the knee and, and create concern and apprehension around the athlete that they can't get it back. We've moved past those initial stage progressions. Um, the athlete's got full extension, has got a, a sort of happy knee. What are we looking at next on that sort of next phase of the rehab? What are your key focus areas here? Yeah, I suppose our next goal is once we've regained our movement and normalized our gait is we want to put muscle back on. And so there's two phases to that. Number one is we want to continue to let the knee settle down. Um, so we don't want what we're doing in the gym to be poking the bear, so to speak, and, and flaring things up and down because pain and swelling is one of the biggest killers of our strength progression. But also we want to redevelop the movement patterns that we're going to use to try and develop that strength. So for example, can I redevelop my squat pattern? Can I redevelop my hinge pattern? Can I redevelop my step pattern? Uh, number one is to have the mechanics that we want to bring into our jumping, landing, and change direction later on. But also number two is to be executing those movements in a way that's going to load your quadriceps and glute or whatever or your hamstring depending on whether it's more of a hinge or squat pattern but also not doing it in a way that's aggravating a knee so you see lots of people squatting you know the the, the knee coming out in front of the toes causing irritation especially the patellar tendon grafts um, and a making no progress and b not being able to load heavy enough to get a strength training effect um, and so knee pain especially anterior knee pain during acl rehab that's a rehab problem so the exercise i'm selecting or the level i'm pitching at is what's driving that anterior knee pain. Yes, a patellar tendon graft might leave me, leave me with more quads weakness. It might leave the, the anterior knee more irritable, but it's my responsibility to find the correct exercises, to find the entry point to build them back up again. Um, so our initial thing is, is as soon as we can walk, can we begin to redevelop our squat, our, um, our step and our hinge? And then can we begin to load those sufficiently to begin to get some form of, of, of adaptation, um, probably with a much larger focus around hypertrophy and muscle mass uh, during that early, you know, first six to 12 weeks, depending on how much we've lost um, before we started. So sets and reps examples, do you have sort of loading progressions? What sort of basis do you use there? Yeah, we were lucky enough to have Brad Schoenfeld come to visit us in the clinic last year and we're discussing hypertrophy and, and how variable everyone is in, in, in how they adapt to specific rep ranges, etc. But 
um, his his recommendations from the literature. You want to be getting 12, 10 to twelve sets per week uh, in that in whether it's 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 two sessions of six sets or three sets, whatever way you want to divide it up. There's several ways of getting adaptation. You can use occlusion. You can use higher rep ranges in the, in the kind of 10 to 12. You can use isometric holes to get a, a metabolic response. So there's more than one way of, of developing that adaptation. And you can use those various tools depending on how sensitive or irritable or low tolerant the athlete in the knee is in those early stages. You need to have a, a toolbox that you can call on to make sure you're making early profit and that you can progress that profit but also making sure that that hypertrophy work is progressing towards higher intensity work uh, as and when the, the athlete is able. So in this stage, obviously, hypertrophy is sort of one aspect. Do you have some general strength targets, whether you use that from an assessment point of view or also just like an exercise might have a, a benchmark around a certain exercise and the load they're lifting? Because sports are so different in what normal relative strength uh, requirements are for each sport, we're obviously going to use symmetry relative to that athlete as our starting point and then everything else is, is, is profit after that. So you may or may not have some, some normal data on them, but um, our, our progression generally through is can we get them front squatting uh, with, with you know 30 or 40 kilos to a low bench? As that front squat is progressing, can we begin them to do some leg press or some step down, uh, step up, step downs? Um, as that begins to progress where they can tolerate that into a single leg squat, can we begin some open chain work maybe from 90 to, to 40 degrees to avoid uh, aggravating the anterior knee, maybe with some occlusion or ty- a longer time under tension so you can get an adaptation but with at lower loads. Um, and then ultimately looking to progress on to uh, full uh, range open chain work but also split lunges to try and target the, the, the rec frame concurrently. So you have your strength goals that, I mean, for us here in the clinic, for field athletes, we're looking for a minimum of, of 260 to 70% body weight on the quads, peak torque, 160 on the hamstrings. But also in parallel, you can be looking for, well, look, at I want them front squatting X amount. I want them to be able to do a step up or down or a single leg squat, whatever number of reps. I want to be able to split lunge a third body weight. So if you don't have dynamometry, you can still have these measures that you can use as, as guesstimates of how you think they're progressing from session to session or from week to week. So you mentioned the, the peak torque, so that's your isokinetic testing roughly when are you doing that with an athlete do you just do it at a certain time frame or when you think they're ready for it it's unnecessary to do it too early and um, because a there's the chance of irritating the knee which isn't going to help anybody and b you know they're not going to be great so you don't want to press them too early with how far they have left to go so you want to have got i would suggest at least two good four-week blocks under your belt uh, to have something that's probably going to be around week 12 uh, to week 16 depending on on how they're quickly they're settling and how proactive they've been at the rehabilitation and that's really it's almost a kick in the ass test. So we know there's going to be big gaps, but we know I have no idea how much muscle you've lost, how much you have regained. So it's really just to say there's no good or bad here. It's just the line in the sand. And we can use that line in the sand to expectation management by prognosis of, of progression forward then. So if you have, a, a, I'm going to say, a 50% difference between limbs, with all the best will in the world, that's not something that's going to close out over the next fortnight. So you're saying in reality, you know, if I can make a five- six seven percent improvement week on week it's going to take me at least four weeks maybe before i even bother considering progressing up my running mechanics and it might take me you know all of four months to get the rest of that strength back up to where i want to go and that's not a good thing or bad thing because you can be an elite athlete who is a full-time training full-time rehab you can be a sub-elite athlete who trains three times a week you could be a recreational athlete a dad busy at work you might only get to the gym once a week so it's important when we're using those metrics we're not saying good or bad. We're saying as a photograph, this is where you are today. 
compared to our normal data, this is where we'd like you. And given on how often you can train and how you've shown adaptability already, it's realistically it's realistic to expect you to make this kind of progression. But also troubleshooting why they may not make progress. So if I'm carrying out the activities or the exercises with with pain in my knee, I'm making no money. So what you know that that serves no purpose whatsoever. If I'm not getting sufficient, if I'm not lifting regularly enough to get enough sufficient load, I'm not going to get the adaptation. If I'm not, which is often one of the biggest things, especially in our in our sub-elite and, and recreation athletes, if I'm not eating enough, if I'm not getting enough protein, then say, you know, 1.5 to 2 grams per kilo, um, there's a lot of eat, there's a lot of eating and getting that much protein to, to develop muscle mass. So, you know, those that have never had to really pay attention to their diet specifically, for especially the sub-elite and, and, and if you want to call your your high-level recreational athlete, um, they, they will never have had the, the chore of trying to build muscle uh, beforehand, realizing how much intensity and burn that takes in the gym, but also how much nutritional support you need to put with that. And so the earlier you can flag these things and say, what's the number one p- uh, trouble athletes have after ACL? It's regaining muscle mass. How is that not going to be a problem for us? Well, we're going to be incremental in our exercises. We're going to lift with intensity and a frequency that's going to get adaptation. We're never going to have pain when we do it because that's completely counterproductive. And I'm going to eat this amount of my training days and ideally support that uh, nutrition more fully. And so even though there's loads more you could be doing, those fundamentals should leave you in a very good position to achieve the outcomes you want. Uh, just to clarify on that, isokinetics about 270 for quad, 170 for hamstring. That was right. From our normative database, one of my uh, colleagues, Mary Dunheim, has a, a, a review paper in the British Journal of Sports Medicine looking at 60 degrees per second you can do higher speeds but if you're looking to measure max the higher forces the lower the torque the better so 60 degrees per second is 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 probably the most appropriate for use uh, in that cohort and yeah you mentioned the split squat around third body weight is that 6rm 8rm or just a, a couple generally speaking that's a that's a 5rm again because it's it's a more unstable pattern um it's not really appropriate to be doing anything less than a you know a, a three two one RMs is, is not appropriate for it. But if you can do five good reps uh, with good form, good form being no trunk flexion or, or or hip sway when you're doing it, that relates quite well back to to, to those kind of isokinetic numbers we found in, in in the cohorts that we have. Earlier you mentioned a little bit around quad strength and running. So when are you starting your running mechanics and or running, and how are you sort of bringing that into the program? And maybe a couple of examples, some drills that you implement early. It's, you know, the first question you all get asked day one rehab is, is, you know, when can I go back to play? And the second question is, when can I start running? Um, and you really want to head that off at the pass and say, look, we're going to start running drills in two weeks time. And they go, yeah, but I'm only two weeks post-surgery. But immediately that begins to get them thinking, shit, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, up, I'm up to speed here already. This is going to go very, very quickly. So what, do, what we want to ask ourselves, again, as you begin with the end of mind is when they start back running, and we're talking about running for volume. So like Anthony, longer than a 60 meter stride out. Um, what mechanically do we want them to look like? And so ideally when, you know, if we look at the common flaws, we see this big pelvic drop, maybe a, a foot pronation and hip adduction knee valgus that we see in the stress and strain that puts through the through the knee and, and the rest of the body. Uh, and number two is we see where they kind of plod or, or, or limp along on that operated side. So what I tend to look for is if they can do a, a hip lock drill where they can do a quick rapid leg change and be stable on one foot. Um, uh, and if they can do single leg uh, pogos or single leg hopping on that side for 20 30 reps as as a fundamental that's a very good starting point to say well look i can begin to, to reintegrate my running here and begin to push on so what you often see is that clinicians will only focus a return based on what their isokinetic strength is but the isokinetic strength is an important part of it but it doesn't tell me how they look like when they go to when they go to go running so very early on we can begin to um 
get off the crutches. We can do single leg stability drills. We can turn them into walking hip hitch drills. We can turn them into small leg change drills at the wall, posture drills, posture holes, uh, and then we can get into more dynamics. So every week or two, we're just progressing. And again, they're very, very low load on the knee, but they're very high demand in how quickly you can organize and coordinate into that hip lock position in, in mid stance. And again, with the plyometric stuff, again, you're looking to focus and target your stiffness more on the, on the ankle region in relation to, to running mechanics. So our just toe tapping drills, how we go into double leg pogos, how we go into single leg pogos and progress on. Again, if I'm starting those mechanics, as soon as they come off the crutches, we're just doing standing toe taps and relating that back to running. We're, we're, there's no point in saying, right, now I'm going running or I have enough strength to go running. Now I'm going to begin these mechanic drills or now I'm going to, you want to always be three steps ahead. So when I start my running in 10, 12, whatever weeks it is, what stuff do I not want to be in the way? And what can I do today to make sure that I'm not turning around and going, shit, I should have started that six weeks ago. And so the earlier you can have those, those clarity and, and, and giving that information miles in advance, because what will happen is they'll come to see you and they'll say, actually, do you know what? I think it's going to take another week. I'm not ready to go back running. I'm still falling over when I do that drill, as opposed to, you know, can I run now? Can I run now? Can you run now? You said I'd be running at six weeks. Well, what is running? Or sorry, you said I'd be running at 12 weeks. It's 12 weeks now. My knee's still sore and I can't stand on one leg. But sure, let's go running anyway, because that's what the protocol says. You know, it's, it's, and then the, the biggest annoyance and, and the biggest killer is going forward and then having to come back. Athletes, especially elite athletes, hate having to roll back. You know, they don't mind progress being slow once it's always progress. But when you have to go running and then say, actually, no, we need to take a couple of weeks off running, that drives them cuckoo psychologically, but also really slows our progression going through. So, like we were talking about early on, er, earlier on, uh, offline in some parts of rehab, that extra week is, is, you know, them having clarity around the criteria for progression for any injury that wasn't in relation to me, but for any injury means that they'll come telling you when they're ready rather than asking you, am I ready yet? Am I ready yet? When clearly the knee is saying they're not. So that, that clarity is very important. Uh, you also mentioned uh, a bit earlier around change direction mechanics uh, and education around that space. When are we starting that? And a uh, similar question in the sense of how are you starting that? Yeah, so if, if, if we think our, our, our ankle plyos and our pogos are kind of you know, the, the step into running mechanics, then our ability to squat and our ability to land is probably the entry point into our change direction mechanics. So can I lower my center of mass with, with coordinating flexion at the hip, knee, and ankle? Uh, can I do that under load? Uh, if I take away the load, can I do it at speed? If I go, I keep the speed, can I do it from two legs to one legs? And once you get to that point where I can do kind of single leg uh, landing, so coming up and just dropping and catching on one foot, we're probably then ready to begin into the journey of change direction. So we can begin to do work across various planes, so landing laterally, landing frontally, etc. We can work on landing, but also on the coordination of push-off, so whether that's sled drills or bungee drills where we're working on being able to, I suppose from a landing, can I absorb and stick? From a push-off, can I coordination that triple extension laterally uh, or, or, or outside of the sagittal plane? And then can I begin to bring them together where I'm doing uh, small mini lateral bounds, uh, shuffle drills, med ball throws, stuff like that, where I can really challenge the ability to stabilize and push off with a degree of intensity. And then once you have those base fundamental patterns, can I introduce chaos to it? Um, I think that's one of the big things is that, you know, and again, because, it, and rightly so, it's been very much an orthopedic or surgery pro, uh, process to date in terms of ACL rehab. Um, 
protocols are a disaster because they stop the athlete and or the clinician from looking at who's in front of them and looking at the competency I have today and looking at how I can bring that competency that I have today to where I think I need to be competency-wise at the end. And some people will pass through that journey quicker. Some people will pass through it slower. Um, some people will make great progress in certain aspects. Uh, maybe that they were good on, so they, they already retained great muscle mass, but they started off with really poor plyometric or change direction mechanics. There. So that might be a slower section for them. So really, again, like all these things is, you know, begin with the end of my, what do I want your change direction mechanics to look like at the end? What test am I going to use to decide if you've achieved that or not? What are the components in terms of strength, eccentric rate of force development, landing mechanics, and then mechanics specific to change direction that, that end up with that end product? And then where are you today? And what's our number one priority? And so going back to the, the, the strength work at the beginning, you know, the ability to generate and absorb force is incredibly important. I don't want strength deficits or, or excessive strength deficits holding up my change direction work. So that's what, you know, beginning, you know, keeping the main thing, the main thing in that first block, second block, third block, get my knee calm, keep it calm. Don't piss it off. Lift with an intensity and a frequency that's going to let me develop muscle. Uh, begin to begin the landing mechanics that I'm going to need later on. And then when you come to the change direction stuff, actually that should be the most enjoyable part because it's really quick and really easy versus I haven't got the strength or my knee is sore and we're just going yo-yo and up and down and up and down and up and down. I've probably jumped forward one then because we were going to ask around your rate of force development and, and landing mechanics. How are you bringing that in? And uh, what are some of your key things that you, you're really uh, looking at there and trying to nail down? Yeah, I think it, it's interesting like, that, that many of our key criteria for progression uh, and return to play in the ACL literature are jumps. Uh, how high can I jump? How far forward can I jump? Um, and our research will show that there's, there's, there's a... a a relatively poor relationship between how far you jump and, and, and the way that you create that jump or asymmetry in, a, in the way that you create that jump. But also what's not quantified as well is my ability to absorb the force that I produce. And if we look at the primary difficulty we're going to have as an ACL or our injury mechanism, it's on that force absorption. One of our, our biomech colleagues recently had a paper looking at the relationship between quadriceps strength and eccentric impulse asymmetry during a counter-movement jump. Uh, between patellar tendon graft and hamstring graft and what he found was that patellar tendon grafts had greater asymmetries at six months which makes sense because they generally had a greater quadriceps weakness and um, there was a, a strong relationship between quad strength and concentric impulse but no relationship between quad strength and eccentric impulse and that their strength improved between six and nine months their concentric impulse and jump height improved between six and nine months and their eccentric impulse didn't or the asymmetry didn't. And so the need to have specific measures of uh, eccentric rate of force development and eccentric capacity, and then to be able to coach that as an independent variable or stream within your power plyo program is incredibly important because we focus a lot on the concentric. We do lots of jumps. We have a whole host of variations with that. How often do we focus on landing? And even then, a lot of our landings are targeting the motor control of landing. So don't let my knee collapse in. Don't let my hip sway. But often don't progress those landings to the same high intensity. So I do Olympic lifts. I do squat jumps. But how often am I landing absorbing high levels of force? When's the last time I held a trap bar of 60, 70, 80 kilos and did a quick landing on double leg or quick landing on single leg? So again, 
the motor control element of it's very important, but redeveloping that capacity to absorb high levels of force, especially on the operated side, is something in an assessment point of view and in a rehab point of view tends to get neglected in preference of the more concentric based variables. How are you assessing that and getting numbers on that, whether it's force plates or other sort of other tech? And also, I mean, that's a great example there that you gave us. Uh, do you have any other sort of exercise examples that you can give us of that around uh, the eccentric force? Our two jump measures are our counter movement jump double leg and single leg and our drop jump double leg and single leg. And so when we're coaching a kind of movement jump, we're looking to, a lot of time the, the eccentric part is too labored and too slow. So you're looking to see how rapidly can they go from eccentric to concentric uh, and the various asymmetries, especially in the double leg one. The double leg one will give you a better idea of how they're preferentially loading one side compared to the other. On the single leg test, they tend to, if cheat or compensate is the term to use, but you, you get a less uh, accurate picture of how they how they load one side compared to the other. Uh, and similar in the double leg drop jump, probably a, a slightly... Uh, greater focus on short ground contact times uh, and a bit more on, on stretch shortening cycle and, and, and plyometric or reactive strength capacity. The reality is that that technology is becoming more and more available. And, and I would see within the next, I mean, nearly every elite sports club now has some form of uh, method of measuring kinetic variables, especially ground reaction force and force plates. And I see that extending to the to the general clinic and the general busy orthopedic clinic over the next two to five years, whereby if you're looking to, if you're seeing a lot of these populations, you're going to need to measure these metrics and you're going to need to, to try and influence them. In terms of the exercise selection, I think a, a lot of people have a, a, an imbalance in, in, especially injured populations, in their capacity to produce force versus their capacity to absorb force. A good example would be how many people can do a single leg counter movement jump and stick their landing so they can create great jump height, but when they come back down to earth again, they can't stick the landing. So again, beginning in that curriculum of can I front squat, can I drop land to two feet, can I drop land to one foot, and then almost splitting it out again into can I drop land with various perturbations to work on, on the co-contraction, to work on the motor, motor control element of it. But then in a separate parallel stream, can I drop land under very, very high intensities? Um, and I tend to use uh, added weight rather than steps. Step height, I find that you know people can cheat on and step down. There's always that injury risk. Um, however, that, that risk is mitigated a bit when your feet are already on the ground. You're just looking to drop and catch, uh, whether it's with a, with a barbell or whether it's a kettlebell or whether it's a trap bar. Um, and really progressing on, progressing on the intensity of that uh, as much as with the same degree of focus and, and programming that you are the concentric variables in terms of, of regaining their, their jump and uh, counter movement jump height. Uh, you mentioned just around the like the drop jump metrics, uh, and obviously I'm assuming maybe you're just looking for symmetry left and right. But you did mention that you have some numbers that you guys have there as sort of general targets. Can you let us know on any of those? With a slight difference between double leg and single leg, you get you get a, a great variety across the sport, whether that's AFL or soccer or, or Gaelic games, and that your your full back who's six foot four. Uh, might have very different reactive uh, strength capacity compared to your small forward or your, your your fastest guy on the team. So a lot of it is 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 individual to the athlete and individual to types of athletes rather than necessarily sports. But ultimately, you're looking for ground contact times uh, under 0.3 uh, of a second uh, for both your double leg and single leg drop jumps, and then tend to focus on the jump height secondarily because a lot of athletes can produce greater heights 
but with longer ground contact times, which ultimately isn't the quality we're looking to focus on. Uh, I was just talking to my, my colleague Neil Welsh on this yesterday about how there is that that uh, lack of appreciation of, of, of regain the speed first and then add intensity to the speed. Um, and so in our plyometric assessments and rehab strategies, how quickly can we get the ground contact times correct first and then add intensity progressing on from there. So again, I would say that all your drop jumps should be under 0.3 of a second. And then after that, depending on the type of athlete you have, you can see a real spread of jump heights that, that, that come off that. All right, beautiful. And I just wanted to touch on a little bit around sort of movement patterns. Obviously, these athletes injure themselves uh, due to most, you know, in most circumstances, aberrant movement patterns. How do we change this? And can we change it? Um, and, you know, athletes might find they only move in one way or only want to change direction in one way. Um, how do we go about sort of dealing with this and managing it to, you know, get the optimum movement-based quality from the athlete? Yeah, I think it goes back to understanding how they're executing that movement and why they're executing that movement. So, for example, if we just take the, the change of direction as, a, as an easy one, and you will see a position where someone's foot's maybe externally rotated, they land in a more extended knee position, the knee collapses, the trunk sway, and pop goes the weasel. And then as you begin to read, look at their change of direction mechanics, you'll find that they've retained that, that, that's, that signature move as they go along. And so the bit for us to understand is what are the pieces of the jigsaw that make up that movement? So, for example, if they have that externally rotated foot position, is that due to a lack of strength and motor control around the hip and around the foot? And we can coach change direction all day, but if they have those deficits, we're unlikely to get change session to session, and we're unlike, definitely unlikely to get change when we go back into chaotic environment. Secondly, is if he's landing in that knee extended position, does he has he not redeveloped, or did he not have the, the quadricep strength? But especially going back to those eccentric capacities that we were talking about earlier on. So again, if I don't have the capacity to reduce force, I'm unlikely to be able to change or, or utilize a different strategy. The strategy I've chosen is probably in relation to the capacity that I have already or that I had previously. And so understanding that being able to profile my 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 motor control, my strength, my power and plyometric ability, they are the, the founding blocks of which then I can begin. But then there's lots of athletes who have all those qualities and that's the strategy they've chosen. They've chosen it because they played on one side of the field and they were used to stepping off their left-hand side. If you're a winger in rugby, they have chosen it because um, the wall at home was on one side. And so they, they always ran around the same way when they're doing it. Maybe a previous ankle sprain, etc. There's, you know, there's a whole host of reasons why they'll choose that. But if we assume that they have enough of those base qualities that we think, then it's a, it's a coordination and a motor learning issue. Um, and where we don't tend to get change is that the drills that we do are not constrained enough to make the athlete choose a different option. Um, so, for example, uh, you'll see someone doing a side shuffle drill and their trunk sways to the side. And they can do that drill for a month. If they sway every time, it's not going to make any difference or any carryover. So if we have them carry out that drill with a stick over their head or with a bungee or with a med ball, immediately leaning to the side is going to feel like a fairly stupid or poor strategy to execute that task. So they'll come up with a new strategy. So the best drills, especially those when we're going into more coordinated and complex movements, are the ones where we shut up. It's where there's a clear pass and fail, and all we have to coach is the intensity of the exercise or a progression of the exercise. So if I tell someone, don't trunk sway, well, number one is I'm unlikely to get any change within that session. Number two is I'm unlikely to get any carryover to my next session and number three is they won't retain any of it when they go back into chaos. 
But if I give them a drill to solve whereby trunks way feels like a stupid option or the least efficient way of carrying out that task, they'll begin to learn themselves a more efficient task and begin to carry that over. And so we take it from simple drills to more intense drills to more chaotic drills. But what you often find is people don't bridge the gap between the gym and the field. So I do have all my strength work. I have all my landing work. But when I change direction, I still carry out this pattern. And so I go back and do lots of sport-specific drills, my little cone work, my little small side of games. But those, those drills are not constrained enough to make me choose a different pattern. They're not constrained enough to encourage me or make me come up with a different solution. So I think coaching verbally is, in terms of, of, of telling them what to do is, is an absolute waste of time. There's lots of literature and research to support that. But not having drills that are constrained enough to allow the pattern you're looking for emerge is probably the biggest pitfall that, that, that we fall into when trying to bridge that gap between the gym uh, and the field in, in terms of changing those specific motor patterns. Yeah, very interesting. Do you, do you have some drills? So when we're in that pattern, so you've moved away from, say, using the sticks and the bands and they're out in the field, small-sided games. Yeah, an example there of maybe some drills the rehab coaches can use to, to try to encourage those patterns we want. You want to start to bridge the gap then in terms of the stimulus that they're going to be perceiving when they go back into chaos. So trying to have partner drills, trying to have drills where there is an element of skill involved that's catching or kicking or whatever is doing it, but constraining them when doing it. So let's say I'm doing a, a one-on-one shadowing drill, but I might have the bungee pulling me to the right-hand side. So it's going to make me even harder for me to push off that side. I might do a, a shadowing drill forward, back or change direction with a, with a lightweighted vest or a water bag. If I end up with my center of mass, it's my side of my best support. Number one is you're going to run, run me, but number two is I'm going to feel fairly sl- slow and fairly stupid. And then trying to bring them that chaos to an end point where I catch and kick then or I make that tackle or I turn and sprint. And so you're trying to just, as much as you can, bleed your way from, you know, okay, I can land when I know what I'm doing into my body has to organize here because all I have to concern about is how you, I mean, you're not going to run around and make me look stupid. Uh, and so creating those drills that, that facilitate that change is very important. Uh, do you think fatigue has much of an influence on our movement patterns there? And how do we sort of counteract that if it does uh, when we're in those sort of more high intensity change direction patterns? Yeah, again, f- fatigue is interesting because it depends on what we mean by fatigue. So we could have a, a center of fatigue that could be related to my overall levels of conditioning relative to my sport. Um, so I've obviously had a, a long time out of sport um, and I'm kind of come back up in demand. So I might have this lovely landing pattern, this lovely change direction pattern, and it might turn to absolute muck after 25 minutes when I'm on my hands and knees gasping for air because uh, you know I, m- my legs are gone. So there's that fatigue element of in terms of how conditioned I am relative to my game. But there's also the fatigue element of it in that individual muscle groups. And you often find that in the quadriceps whereby you do your peak torque assessment and isokinetics or however you choose to do it. They show appropriate levels and appropriate symmetry, but I still have 20 or 30%, uh, 20% is an exaggeration, maybe 20% less muscle mass or quad mass on my right side than my left side. So when I'm executing tasks, the side with the less muscle mass is obviously reliant on neural drive to, to facilitate the generation of that intensity. Neural drive is going to fatigue quicker. Uh, you're going to often, so often you'll find that, that someone who has a, a peak torque symmetry, you, you do a fatiguing test on them, that they drop off much, much, much quicker. Uh, whether that's a, a 20 RM in the isokinetics, whether it's a repeated hop test, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we're trying to be targeted and we're talking about fatigue, it's important to differentiate whether I mean uh, my overall fatigue levels relative to my level of conditioning, uh, or I mean specific fatigue relative to specific muscles. And that doesn't mean that doing a fatiguing protocol is the best way to rehab that. 
the best way to do that and say in the quads is to get my hypertrophy back and get my muscle mass back. So fatigue gets thrown around a lot, but it's often misunderstood. And especially from a sporting point of view, the more fatigued I am, the slower I move, the slower I move, the less force is going through my body. So often my injury risk comes down from a joint loading point of view, whatever about a soft tissue point of view, my risk is often mitigated by the fact that I just, I'm too slow to generate force. I don't have to worry what I can't absorb if I can't generate it. So there's a whole host of, of, of factors that, that muddy that water. But again, if we're very clear on our criteria and in parallel, I have an understanding of, of the levels of conditioning required for the game that I'm, I'm working on as many of those levels early in rehab while not polluting my strength and power work that by the time it's time to go back to my, you know, really sport specific demands, I have my base aerobic capacity. I have my base anaerobic capacity relative to my sport. And it's a case then of just putting together the, the match specific demands that might mean I don't make a tackle for five minutes and then I'm going flat out for 90 seconds in a row. The kind of intensity you, you often only get by just reintroducing back into sporting or training environments. Bringing it all together with some return to sport and there's a lot published in this space. So in your opinion, is there just one or two things that are sort of must-haves uh, around that return to sport other than, I guess, some of those factors you mentioned already? Again, beginning with the end in mind, if we look at what's an unsuccessful return to sport, so an unsuccessful return to sport is I go back to play and my knee is still sore. So very often, and, and most commonly, that, that's an insufficient rehabilitation. So if I've been really uh, meticulous in the outcome measures I use and my meeting of goals, that should leave a, a successful outcome there. Number two is re-injury. Um, a certain amount of that might be genetic. It might be the fact that, you know, graft takes time to heal. But a lot of it is driven by motor control and motor patterns. So how much of that can we clean up? Um, and the third one is getting back to play or perform at the level you were pre-injury. And some of that is related to injury. And some of that's related to the fact I just haven't played in a year. If a healthy player took a year out, it'll take a degree of time to, to build back up again. And the areas that they often say that they struggle with in that reintroduction to get back to full performance is my fitness levels are down. So again, if we can flag that early, my skill levels are down. You know, I'm really fit, but the ball hits me in the face every time I go to catch it. That's something we can work on incredibly early in rehab as well. Or number three is my speed and agility is down. But again, if we worked on those chaotic drills during our linear and multi-progressions, again, nothing reproduces training, nothing reproduces playing, but we fill the gap as much as we can. And trying to get everyone's buy-in at the beginning around what metrics we can use. So have our football coaches got football-specific drills, have our uh, fitness coaches got conditioning assessments, have our strength power coaches and our rehab coaches got metrics relating to how I move and the force I can produce. And if we can write that down the day before surgery, the day after surgery, we're much more likely to get a successful transition back. And we talk about transition as though it's this end point, but actually there's a really nice paper by Scott Morrison talking about energy system development as part of return to play. But he these three lovely uh, guidelines of return to participation means, you know, I have enough capacity to go back to play the sport. Return to sport is I've developed enough conditioning levels to participate or compete in that sport. And return to performance is I'm back competing for a sustained period or a long enough period. And you get those guys that, you know, even they get repeated legals or not, they just, they can turn up and start playing away at their levels. And then you get other guys who need four games or five games to get back into it. There's a degree of individuality to it. But again, if we think about the common pitfalls are, if I have knee pain, knee pain is going to kill my, my, how quickly I can come back. If I'm not conditioned to the level of the game, I'm going to struggle to perform. And if my skill level, which I can work on really, really well early on, and maybe injury is an opportunity to, to focus in and target on, on skill acquisition that I maybe hadn't the time to or didn't choose to take the time to when I was playing full-time, they're all great opportunities to fill those gaps as quickly as possible to make sure when we do return to sport, 
It's a agreed decision-making process from the surgeon, from the uh, medical team, from the conditioning team and from the football team. But actually, can everyone write that down at the beginning rather than deciding at the end, well, I'm going to get a bit fuzzy here and you know this game's coming up and it's the end of the season, et cetera, et cetera. So when people want to have an input, I think if you can make that person, regardless of their background, write down what the criteria is, they will either have clear criteria or they won't want to have an opinion because they just want to feel that they have a step or, or plan in the process. So if you can't write down what you, what you think they need to achieve, how can you have an input in the decision-making process? Nice, mate. Well, um, I was actually lucky enough to be over there uh, recently and, and see you see you work. But you guys have a, a great facility there that is open to athletes, um, obviously being able to come and train with you for, for periods and blocks of time. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we cater for, for, for athletes nationally and internationally um, around three main areas. Number one are those coming back from, from defined injury, so ACL, uh, syndesmosis, uh, shoulder reconstruction, whereby they're coming for an intensive block, perhaps a, a change of environment from the club, but also to try and provide some detailed analysis biomechanically and strength and power-wise that can be fed back to the club to, to enhance their decision-making and their prognosis setting going forward. We have a number of, of athletes who come because of niggling injuries that are just not going away. It could be uh, chronic tendinopathies, high hamstring, patellar tendon, athletic groin pain, low back pain, whereby it, it's a, maybe a fresh eyes approach on where they're at and, and, and separating out, as I said, that, that gap between where I'm sore and why I'm sore and, and what we can do about it. And then you have your, 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 whether it's your older athletes or your previous injured athletes who have found benefit and can see that the, the the, the value in moving well as a method of reducing their injury risk, but moving well as a, as a base of making them a better athlete who want to come and do a couple of weeks pre-season or, or in their off time to set them up to, to really tolerate the demands of, 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 of a long and, and, and a rocky road through the season. So just to try and wipe the hard drive, recalibrate, get some numbers on, on, on where they're at and, and push forward from there. Beautiful. Well, it's, uh, I can I can speak on behalf of myself. It's a very smooth run operation, and uh, I'm sure if any any uh, physios or coaches out there want to get their athletes down there, it's certainly well worth it. And a great team of physios and S and C and biomechanics uh, staff down there at the sports surgery clinic, mate. So it's awesome. Thanks very much. Well, that's enough from us. I hope everyone really enjoyed that chat. Um, Edna, of course, is coming out in three months to Australia. So pumped to uh, hear what he has to say and actually see this sort of stuff, what he's talking about in real life and go through some great practical stuff. So uh, if you're keen to uh, get on board and not miss out, I'd, I'd do so quickly. So thanks again, Edna. I really appreciate your time, mate. Cheers, Nick. Speak to you soon. 